Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. Imagine for a moment you are standing by the bus stop outside of a library and a man that you don't know a man that you've never seen before, walks up to you and says, the Colorado red-tailed hawk mates only in the winter, and then walks away. Now, even though you understand the sentence, you understand the words that he said, it makes no sense to you, because you don't know what it means when he said that. And the only way for you to understand What he was trying to say to you was to put that phrase, that event, into a story. So what would the story be? Well, maybe he's mentally ill, right? He's got a screw loose. That's a story, right? That would explain why a man that you don't know and had never met before walked up to you and said, the Colorado red-tailed hawk mates only in the winter. That would explain it. That's a story. And that would make sense. But here's another story. What if yesterday, someone of your age and height and general appearance approached the man in the library asking about the mating habits of the Colorado red-tailed hawk? And today, that man sees you, mistakes you for the person he talked to yesterday, and so he walks up to you at the bus stop And he gives you the information that yesterday he didn't have, but today he has. The Colorado red-tailed hawk mates only in the winter. Here's another possibility. The young man is a foreign spy. He's waiting at a prearranged rendezvous point, and the code phrase that he is supposed to use to identify himself to his foreign agent handler is, the Colorado red-tailed hawk mates only in the winter. See, that would make sense too, right? Each of these stories are different. And each one of these three stories helps to make sense of what is happening. So how you respond to that situation is all going to depend on what you believe the story is. Now, you, one thing that you could do as a response is you could try to kill him. I mean, if this guy is a foreign spy, he might be here to assassinate somebody. And you need to stop him. But if you were to kill him and he was mentally ill, well, that would be a shame. Or you could catch up with him. Or you could try to find the person, you could look around and try to find the person around you that looks like you, your general appearance, and you could give them the information. But if that guy was a foreign spy, he might try to kill you. Or you could call the police or a local hospital and report the man. I mean, whatever it is that you do, it will be based on your understanding of the story the story that you are placing this event into. But if you assume the wrong story and you do the wrong thing, 
well, then it will be a shame because you will have done something that makes no sense to the story. Now, for some Christians, this is the story that we place our work into. In church, I'm doing God's work. But out in the world, I'm just trying to make a living. I'm trying to make a living so that I can do God's work. I'm trying to make a living so that I can uh, pay and fund the missionaries and the, the church people who are doing God's work. That is one story. But if that is your story, then what will happen is, is that you will make no effort to shape your work by your faith. In other words, you will steal your faith away from your work. And many people do this, and we don't even think about it because it's the path of least resistance. It allows us to go to work and to just blend in. And we go to work and we don't ask the questions. We, we don't ask what would we do or how what we does reflects the values that we have, especially if you're a Christian, especially if you are a person who claims to follow Jesus. Now, that is a story that makes sense, but not when you put that story up against who Jesus says he is and what Jesus teaches us. We have to put our work into Jesus' story, the story that starts with creation, and, and then there's a fall, and then there is redemption, and it ends in restoration. And unless we understand that there is a creation, it starts with creation, that God is the creator of all things, and that everything that he created is good. And then we understand that there is a fall, that, that we have fallen, not in a way where everything we do is bad, but in a way that we understand that sin distorts everything and every part of our life. But Jesus' story goes on with redemption, and, and in redemption, he says, you are now a new creation. All things are made new. And if we really believe that, then we have to recognize that we can't just say, Jesus has redeemed my family life, but he hasn't done anything for my work life. And then there's restoration. He's not simply taking us into another world, but his plan has always been to restore the world that we are in. So last week we started this series called Peace of Work, and, and we talked about how that word peace is, is in the Hebrew, it, it's a word that means shalom, and that shalom is more than just a cessation of hostilities, but shalom is, is this idea where there's completeness, there's wholeness. It's, it's an idea that, 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 that is loosely translated as nothing missing, nothing broken. And we saw that we can bring that shalom and have that shalom, that peace, that completeness, that wholeness with our work. And so last week, what we talked about was that work matters to God. It is who God is. God is a God who works. In fact, in the very first chapter of Scripture, we see God digging his hands into the dirt and working. God created paradise, and there was work. And then we saw last week that even when God restores paradise, there is going to be work because work matters to God. So today, what we're going to look at is how do we get that peace, that shalom, that we need for work? 
How do we go into our workplace, into our work environments? Or for those of you who are still in school but are preparing for a career somewhere working, how do we get that peace and bring it when we are at work? And what we have to recognize is, and the theme that we're going to be talking about today, is that work matters to God, but your work matters to God. Now, we're going to be in um, looking at Scripture, and we're going to be in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And if you want to follow along um, with us, you can do that. We're going to be starting in verse 5, but we're going to put the words up on the screen also. So in Ephesians 6, this is Paul, and he's talking to the brand new church in Ephesus, the church that he had helped plant. And these brand new Christians, these weren't Christians who were Jews before, but these were Christians who used to be pagans, who used to have multiple gods, and were raised in this Greco-Roman world. And he's talking to them, and in Ephesians 6, verse 5, he starts by saying, slaves. That's just the first verse. Now, in order for us to understand the context of this, we have to understand what this word means. And Bible commentaries, what they try to do is, is they try to take the Bible texts and put it into the historical and cultural context of the time so that we understand it. Now, that Paul is writing this letter as something to be read out loud. It's like a sermon that he is writing. It's not something for people to read. It was intended to be read to an audience. In fact, it was intended to be read to a household. Ephesians 5 and 6, if you look at those two chapters together, it is what historians refer to as a household code, meaning it talks about what the relationship should be between husbands and wives, and it talks about the relationship between parents and children, and it talks about the relationship between servants or slaves and masters, because at this time, in a household, that was who lived there. There were parents and children, there were husbands and wives, and there were slaves and masters, and they were all living together. Now, it's important for us to understand this because many times throughout history, people have used these texts to justify slavery. And we have to understand that that is not what Paul is trying to do here. See, Paul is not saying, hey, we are Christians, let's get together and let's talk about what we think about the political and social culture of the Roman world. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, okay, listen, on a very, very practical level, when you get back to your work, when you leave here and go back to your household and you go back to your work, this is what you need to do. This is how you live in that society. So Paul is not condoning slavery, but he's also not criticizing it. He's just commenting on it because that is the fact of life in the world that they were in. And, you know, we know from our history here in the United States that when the practice of slavery here ended, it ended because Christians rose up and said that we can't do this anymore. So the question that we would have is, if, if here in this country, the Christians are the one that rose up and said, we can't do this anymore, why didn't the early Christians back then do the same thing? Why didn't they rise up and say, we can't have slavery anymore? Well, the reason is, is because slavery back then is very different from what we picture today as slavery. 
for all of us, we picture slavery on this side of the African slave trade. That's how we view slavery. But back then, slavery was different. What they talked about as slavery was different. First of all, in this time, slavery was not based on race. It was never permanent. In other words, when you became a slave, you never were permanently for the rest of your life a slave. Slavery was not based on kidnapping. People didn't go out and kidnap people and turn them into slaves. That's not what slavery was then. Most slaves were captives from wars. So a a country would go to battle with another country and they would take people and make them slaves. But even those slaves that were brought from other places to be slaves, their term of slavery was only 10 to 15 years. They weren't permanently slaves. And oftentimes slaves ended up slaves because of indentured servanthood. In other words, they owed somebody some money and they had to pay it off. And the way that they paid it off was they became a slave. Another thing was is that in this time, slaves had rights. At the time Paul was writing this, slaves could take their masters to court for abuse or for injustice. Slaves in this time could own property. Slaves could own other slaves. Now, it wasn't a great institution, but it was a very different one from the one that you and I would often picture if we were to to think to ourselves or to imagine what slavery is. So here is Paul... And he's preaching, it's, it's, his, it's their weekend service, he's preaching to the people in the household, and he's not talking about how to abolish slavery, because it's not the slavery that we think of. He's not talking about how to abolish it, but he's talking about how to live in it. And even though slavery then was nowhere near as, but- as brutal as it was during the African slave trade, it still wasn't great. And Bible scholars will tell us that that when you read what Paul says about masters and servants, the, the practice of slavery, if we were to adopt what Paul said, would eventually have to wilt and die. That the attitudes that Paul demanded from Christians meant that every kind, that even that kind of slavery could not last. Paul's words, as we're going to see, set it up for failure. He set it up to wilt and die. And what we know from history is, is that's what happened. And it was because of these attitudes, it was because of these things that Paul was talking about, that slaves flocked to the early church. So the natural question for us would be, what relevance could it possibly be, have to me? Paul's advice to the first century slaves. I mean, it's so far away in time from today. It's not really relevant. But actually it is. Because when we look at what work in America is today, you know, a few years ago they did this survey of work in America, and one of the things that they found out is, that is or the conclusion that they came to is, is that work in the United States today is about violence, violence to the spirit and to the body. You work today and you end up with ulcers. You end up with uh, accidents at work, physical danger for people at work. For many, work is a, is a time of daily humiliation. And so, yes, today we don't have slavery, but, but we do have some people who always experience work as humiliating, grinding drudgery. And work is still hard today. And work can still get frustrating. And work is often about overwork. 
It's often about making money, and it's about not making enough money. And so here was the early church, and it was filled with slaves and servants because the gospel message and what Paul was teaching enabled them, despite their work, despite their status as a slave, it it enabled them to make their work life meaningful and satisfying and even sustainable. And so if Paul's prescription to first century slaves was relevant to them, then it is just as relevant to us. And the beauty of it is that Paul's prescription to them worked. Now, many Greek and Roman writers wrote household codes, which is what Paul is writing here. They were codes of conduct for husbands and wives and masters and slaves and and parents and children. But here is the difference. When the Greek and Roman writers would write a household code, they only addressed the head of the household. They didn't talk to anybody else. Because their thinking was, it was the masters who were the ones that had the power. So there was no point in writing the code to address anyone else. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul addresses the slaves directly. He talks to the slaves before he even talks to the masters. In fact, if you read what he said, he talks to the slaves more than he talked to the masters. In other words, Paul is writing this, and he is treating the slaves with dignity. Other writers didn't do that. They they wrote only to the masters because they thought there was no point in addressing anything to the slaves. After all, the slaves only did whatever it was you told them. And so we look at Paul, and that's not how he sees it. And so this verse continues like this. It says, slaves, obey your earthly masters, your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. And what Paul is doing here is he is relativizing all human bosses, all human masters, and all human careers. He's emphasizing earthly masters which infers that there is a non-earthly master, right? He says, listen, I want you to show respect and do a good job for your earthly master, but don't ever think for a moment that they are your real master. Now, this is an important concept because for many of us, we live in a world where it's white-collar versus blue-collar. And in the white-collar world, everybody is overworked. Your career means everything to you. You want to do well because for the people who are in the white-collar world, their career, their job, what they do is their identity. But in the blue-collar world, no one is overworked. Blue-collared people, for the most part, they don't particularly like their job. They often despise management, and they only do what they have to do, only when the eye of the manager is on them. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying... Serve them. Whether you are in the white-collar world or in the blue-collar world, serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Because those people aren't your bosses. And when you get that idea that the people you work for aren't your bosses, it does two things. It destroys overwork because you don't have to kill yourself in order to please them. But it also does this. In verse 6, it says, try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. So it 
it destroys overwork, but it also destroys underwork. I, 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 um, I saw this when I was in, in, uh, living in Central Florida, and um, part of my responsibility was to work a shift at a retirement facility to work as one of the staff. And even though I was in management, I spent quite a bit of time putting on you know, regular clothes and working and, and dealing with patients directly. And one of the things that I would hear people say is, is that I was working too fast. That I should, needed to slow down. And I, you know, I, I smiled and I listened to what they were saying. And what they were saying was this, was that I'm only going to be there for a month or two. I'm not going to be doing this permanently. But even after I'm gone, they have to keep doing it. They have to still be there doing the work. So if I show and work fast and show that the work can be done in a shorter amount of time, they're going to get more work. So they wanted to continue to stretch out the amount of time that there had to be to do the work so that they didn't have to work as hard. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Because if we consider ourselves to be slaves of Christ, then we will do the will of God with all of our heart. He goes on in verse 7 and he says this. He says, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. And this is a, a, an interesting translation because it, translated, it translates this as, as if it's supposed to be a mental thing. He says, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord. You know, so he's saying you need to have this mental change in your, in your brain, this change of mindset where you picture yourself as though you were working for the Lord. But when you actually translate that phrase in Greek, the Greek translation says you are actually working for the Lord. You see the difference? It's not a mental assent to the concept that we're doing it as though we're working for God. What Paul is saying is, is that when you work, no matter what work you do, you are actually working for the Lord. Essentially, what he's saying is this. All work, all work, regardless of what your work is, all work is a calling. All work serves the Lord. Verse 8, it continues, and he says, remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slave or free. See, sometimes I think we forget that God is going to be the only boss that's going to still be around a thousand years from now. And because of that, we can't be pressured into performing, but we also know that we're not supposed to slack off because He is our boss. And then in verse 9, he says this, masters. Now he's talking to the masters. This whole thing before was him talking to the slaves and telling them how they were supposed to respond to their masters. Now he shifts gears and he says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Now think about this. In the same way as what? He's saying, we have to say in the same way we look at the verses before. 
And you see what he's talking about. He's saying, treat them in the same way. And the, what he told the slaves was, is he had to treat them with what? With fear and respect. Slaves should treat their masters with fear and respect, but masters should also treat their slaves with fear and respect. And then he says, don't threaten them. Now, this is completely alien from what the Greeks and the Romans taught about how you're supposed to treat your slaves. The Roman writer Seneca wrote, always treat your slaves as enemies. And Paul is saying, no, you treat them with respect. And then he says, remember, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. See, he's telling the people who are masters, he's saying, listen, you are slaves too. You are slaves too. And from God's point of view, both of you, the slave and the master, in our terms today, the employer and the employee, God looks at both of you as equal. He has no favorites. Now, that phrase where he says um, at the end of the verse, and he says, you both have the same master in heaven and he has no favorites. That phrase, he has no favorites, is often translated and if you have been in church or if you've grown up in church, you might have heard the phrase, he is not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of persons. Now, that phrase, respecter of persons, is actually a Greek idiom, which means in God's eyes, you are equal. Unheard of. In God's eyes, you are equal. And so this message of Paul, the gospel message brought people to a place where even the moderate type of slavery that they had back then couldn't withstand the message of the gospel. The, um, the Greek philosopher Aristotle said that some people deserve to be slaves. He said some people are born to be slaves. And Paul comes right up against that idea. He comes right up against that theory and he says, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. You're the employer, you're the employee, you are the master or you are the slave. All work, all work is a calling from God. The, um, there's an author named Peter O'Brien, and, and this is what he wrote. He said, in response to this thing that Paul had just written, he says, ultimately then, the distinction between the secular and the sacred breaks down. Every task, however secular or menial, falls within the sphere of Christ's lordship. Do you get that? Do you get that everything that everybody does, every job that there is, falls within the sphere of Christ's lordship? Every job is a calling from God. You know, if you know about Martin Luther, who was the priest that started the, the Protestant Reformation, during the Reformation, the battle cry for the Reformation was saved by faith alone through grace alone. But do you know that there was a second cry? That there was a second battle cry that we don't hear often about. And that was the priesthood of all believers. The theory that all of us who are believers are part of the priesthood. Now, Martin Luther, he was a monk. And for years, he was told that monks and nuns and priests 
They were the ones that were called by God. They had a calling from God. They were the ones doing God's work, and everyone else was just out there working. But then as he read texts like this, as he read what Paul would write here in Ephesians, what he wrote to Timothy, what he wrote to the Philippians, he said, wait a second. The milkmaid, and we don't have milkmaids today, right? But we understand the concept at the very basic level of work. He says the milkmaid has as honorable a calling as the priest and the preacher. The milkmaid. Today, it's, it's, it's the people who work at the dairy. It's the people who, who do the landscaping. It's, it's the people who clean the bathrooms. It's the worst jobs in the world. The, the guys that, that come and they pump out septic tanks. The, the guys who are out on, on the road and, and, and sweeping the streets. The people that we think of that have the menial, the most menial the most insignificant jobs, they have the same honorable calling as the priest and the preacher. And and we saw this last week. I I don't want to go too much into it, but last week in Genesis 1, we saw that all work is necessary for human flourishing, right? For us, we think, well, there's some good work and there's some bad work. There's some important work and there's some menial work, but not with God. With God, There's no favoritism. He's not a respecter of persons. Everybody is equal, which means every job in God's eyes is equal. And we know this because many of the jobs that we think are menial, if they don't get done, somebody dies. Either you sweep your floor and clean your bathrooms and do your laundry, or you pay someone to do it, or you will die. It's a, it is an extraction, but it is true. If no one did your laundry and no one cleaned your sink and no one ever cleaned your bathroom, hygiene will jump in and say, well, I'm sorry, you're going to get some diseases and you will die. It is all of those jobs are absolutely necessary for human life. And it doesn't matter that they don't pay well. The point is, is that they are crucial. And all work is crucial So all work is a calling from God. See, one of the things we recognize, and you don't have to even be a Christian to know this, but we were designed to live together in community. We were designed to live together with other people. And God made us with different gifts and different abilities and different skills. And as a result, we all work together. No one is greater than the other And everything that we do is God's calling. And when we get to a place when we start to think of our work, not as just a way to make money, but as a calling from God, then we start to do our work differently. There's an author, and uh, her name is Dorothy Sayers, and she she wrote this paper, and it was called Why Work? And I want to read to you a a segment of it. And this is what she says. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world 
is tuned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and that the greater parts of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. Whatever it is you do, that is what God is calling to you to do, and that is your holy, divine call from God. And is it any wonder then that when we look at the areas where it affects culture most, if we look at the areas of work that are in entertainment, that are in politics, that are in law, is it any wonder that Jesus' followers seem to be absent from them or that any influence on Jesus' teachings seem to be absent from those areas of our culture and our areas of our work? It's because we have not allowed work to be told in the story that makes sense. That everything that we do, every single type of work, is part of God's calling. So whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you do, what God has called you to do. I mean, think about it. What is the word that describes your vocation? Then I want you to put it into this sentence. God has called me to be a whatever it is. Whatever you do, that is what God is calling you to do. That is where God has called you. That is your calling. And regardless of what it is, it is as divine a calling as to the person who's supposed to stand up here every weekend and share God's word with you. There is no difference. God doesn't look at some of us and says, oh, he preaches on the weekend. He's holy. That's holy work. But he's a nurse. She works in the hospital. He sells real estate. That's not holy work. That's just what you do on the weekends, I mean, on, during the week, so that you can come here and be holy. That is not what God is saying. That is not what Paul is telling us. Paul is saying that no matter what it is that you do, God does not have favorites and that every single job, every single thing that you do is a calling from God. So what has God called you to do? Do you look at your work, at your vocation? For those of you who are still in school, do you look at that career that you are educating yourself for, that you are planning for? Do you look at that as that is what God is calling you to do? Because that is what God is calling you to do. Now, there's one more thing. If we truly believe that every work is a call from God, then we have to be careful how we treat people. 
The theologian R.C. Sproul, in his book, In Search of Dignity, he writes this. He says, don't you dare think that just because you are a highly trained professional, that you are somehow better than the doorman, that you should treat them with less respect. Is your faith evident in how you treat people? See, the question for us is, is have we really taken this to heart? It's easy when we look at our work and we say, wow, that's, that's impressive. I like that. What I'm doing today is God's calling on my life. I am called to be in the work that I am doing. But if we accept that for us, then we have to accept that for other people as well. We have to take to heart that all work has dignity, that all workers have dignity, and that all work is a calling from God. And we have to examine ourselves. Who are the people that we run into that we treat poorly or with less respect because we think that their work matters less than ours? I mean, when we're walking down the street and there are gardeners working on somebody's lawn, do we ignore them because they're just gardeners? Do we treat our waitresses and waiters when they come to us because they are serving us food, do we treat them like servants? Like their work isn't important? How do we treat the people who have other jobs that we look down on? Because as long as we see a hierarchy in work, then we'll never come to a place where we can accept that all work is a calling from God. Your work matters to God, but his or her work, every other person that you run into, their work matters to God too. There's a, a place in scripture where Jesus is, is talking to two of his disciples and he says, put down your nets, come with me, I will make you fishers of men. And, and I think sometimes we ask ourselves, you know, when, when we we get into these times, these places where we feel like God is really calling me for something and we think, well, maybe what we have to do is we have to leave our job and go work for Jesus. And that's the only way that we can actually do something for Jesus is if we leave our job and go work for Jesus. But when Jesus was calling those guys to leave their nets and he would make them fishers of men, he wasn't calling them to drop their career. We know that they eventually went back and started fishing again. But what Jesus was saying is this. Listen, I can make you a fisherman beyond your being a fisherman. He's saying, I have a business that is beyond your business. I want you to be able to rest your heart in me regardless of what it is you do. And then I want you to take your heart that's rested in me and infuse it into what you do. Some of us, we can't even walk away from our nets. We have jobs or careers and we get to a place we can't walk away from it. We can't walk away from it to spend time with our families. We can't walk away from it to care for our bodies. We can't walk away from it to care for our souls. And Jesus says, listen, what you're doing is a good thing. It is your calling, but don't forget 
that I am your real career. You know, this whole thing starts at the very beginning, at the end of chapter 5, before we get into this whole thing. Paul is right, writes this. He says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That actual word there, uh, reverence, it, in the Greek, it is, it is the word fear. And that fear, you know, when we think of fear, what we think of is we think of being frightened or something that is scary or something that is ominous that, that we should be fearful of. But that word fear is translated as joyful, astonished awe and wonder before God. Joyful, astonished awe and wonder before God. That's why in Psalm 130, where, where David writes, because you forgive me, I fear you. He is not saying, because you forgive me, I'm scared of you. He's saying, because despite all of the crap that I have done in my life, you still forgive me, I have joyful, astonished awe and wonder for you. So why should we serve one another? Why should we submit to one another? He's saying because we all serve him. And as we're approaching the Easter season, it is a reminder for us that Jesus served you and me on the cross by dying for us. That he, in spite of us being his enemies, in spite of us fighting against him, in spite of us rebelling against him, he died for us. Listen, if we can just get that inside us, it will change the way that we work. And so when we ask ourselves, when we look at our jobs, when we look at the, 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 the situation on Monday morning that we have to walk into, and you say, listen, how am I going to walk into work and work for someone that I despise? How do I walk into work every day and work for someone that I know is a fool? How am I going to be able to serve them? And the answer is, is that we do it the same way Jesus did it. Jesus died for us while, while we were still his enemies. He served us while we were still his enemies. And that's how we can go on and serve in our work. Work matters to God. It was his plan. It is supposed to bring us joy. It is supposed to bring us fulfillment and contentment and accomplishment. Work matters to God. But don't ever forget that your work, what you do today, your work matters to God. Because it is through your work that God is able to bless and to fulfill His promise to all of us. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, Look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.